Our text is Psalm 101, Psalm 101. I didn't set out to do it, nor did I realize it, but until I looked at this material this week, and then again this morning, that I have something of an election year sermon here. Though that was not my intention. It's an election year sermon destined to be ignored by everyone. Unheeded. But I'd like to start by perhaps clearing up a little bit on some terminology which always seems to come up when we deal with a text like this and often comes up in our public debate when we ask some questions about righteous government and how government's supposed to function and the like, which is certainly what Psalm 101 is about. Americans have a fear of the word theocracy. Probably a justified fear, I suppose, in some senses. The word conjures up images of mullahs or clergymen running countries according to religious law. And in our context, it gets invoked anytime explicitly Christian or biblical principles are appealed to for a public policy position. We have separation of church and state, we are told. And we do. The phrase itself is not in the Constitution, but the idea is a long-standing part of the American legal tradition. No Christian thinker that I know wants the institutional church to run the state. Or the state to run the church for that, vice, for that reason. And yet, even the First Amendment only prohibits Congress from making a law establishing a national religion. And later, with the 14th Amendment, it prohibits the states from doing the same thing. Really a rather limited amendment. And it expressly forbids laws prohibiting the free exercise of religion. So there's a lot of conversation about separation of church and state. But it doesn't mean, nor has it ever meant, that religious principles were to be banished from public life. There's a famous book written about 30 years ago now by Richard John Newhouse called The Naked Public Square. Newhouse is the founder. He's now deceased and with his Lord, but he was the founder of the great journal First Things. It's a journal about religion and public life in America. Everyone should subscribe. But Newhouse wrote this book, The Naked Public Square, where he tried to show that the public square is never naked. Someone's always clothing it with their ideas or their principles, and it was never intended to be some naked antiseptic space. All legislation enforces someone's morality. That is, every law codifies some vision of what the human person is, of what the common good is, of what is right, of what is just and what is wrong, what liberty requires, what the role of the state is. And so the question of legislation is never ethics or no ethics, but whose ethics? Whose ethics? On what basis? Now, you can never even get this far in our public debate. It's, it's so debased and crass. 
even with Israel, under her king, in the land, that is, Israel as a theocracy, if you will, in the Old Testament, even there, even there, there was a separation of church and state. Right? The king in Israel could not assume the functions of the priesthood, and the priest could not assume royal prerogatives. The church and the state, they were bound more closely than they are in our situation, to be sure, but they were distinct. The idea that this separation of church and state is a discovery of the Enlightenment is a modern conceit. It has deep roots in the Judeo-Christian tradition. This distinction between the institutional church and the state is pervasive. It's in scripture, it's in the Western legal tradition. Yet, and this is a key point here when we come to a text like Psalm 101, which is about a theocratic king ruling in Israel. In Israel, both the church and the state were under God, under his chosen king. That's the sense in which we speak of Israel and the land as a theocracy. So the word really shouldn't be scary. Theocracy simply means rule of God. Theo, crassus, theocracy, rule of God. All Christians who confess that Jesus is king are theocrats in the most basic primal sense. In fact, in this sense, Jesus is king. Theocracy is the government of the cosmos. Everyone lives under one. The rule of King Jesus. He is, of course, called in the New Testament the king of kings. The lord of political lords. Lord of senators. Lord of congressmen. Lord of the House of Commons. Lord of the House of Lords. Lord of the bureaucrats in Brussels. Lord of the UN. That's what the term king of kings means. It doesn't mean absentee monarch who allows you to do whatever you'd like. Now, this is where this gets a little bit interesting. This doesn't mean that Israel's situation should just be taken and imposed on the nations. Israel was unique. They're God's chosen covenant people. God made a covenant with them and with no one else. They are a type, as we saw last week. Israel in the land is a picture of God dwelling with his people in the new heavens and the new earth. But on the other hand, on the other hand, this doesn't mean that all governments, including ours, even governments with first amendments, can't learn from the wisdom of Israel. The separation of church and state has never meant the separation of religion and society. Nor does it mean that rulers can escape accountability to God who governs the cosmos and who has entrusted the public good to them. So, thus our text. Psalm 101. It is tied to the Israelite situation, what we might call the Israelite theocracy. But it has much to teach rulers, 
or for that matter, anyone, anyone in public authority, anyone with a public trust should listen to this psalm. And so we'll make three points. They're there in the outline. The foundation, personal ethics, and social ethics. This is a psalm of David. David's a king. And it's an affirmation, Psalm 101, is of the ethical standards he's going to hold himself to and his administration to and the people in the land to. And, and most scholars think this was a psalm that could have been used at his inauguration or it could have been used at some annual renewal ceremony, sort of like a State of the Union address, even by later kings. So that Psalm 101, verse 1 starts, I will sing of your love and justice to you, O Lord. I will sing praise. It's an affirmation by the king of loyalty as well as praise to the Lord. And it invokes these two things. First, God's love. It invokes the love of God. And here, the word for that is hesed. H-E-S-E-D, hesed. It's God's covenant fidelity. His loyalty. God's loyal love, as we've said before. God had made this covenant with Moses. With Israel through Moses. But he also had made later a covenant with David and his house. With David's line. And when David speaks of the Lord's love here, he is thinking not of God's love in general, but of the electing love by which he chose David, promised him a throne. And he bound David and David's sons to the terms of the covenant. David is remembering that love, celebrating that love here. And that's why the next thing he evokes is justice. Justice for, for David is not, you know, just an ideal, something that floats around up here, abstract. It's a concrete thing. If you were a king in Israel, justice is embodied in the law. Because it's the law of the covenant. God shows his love by making a covenant with David. And in, in that covenant, he gives a covenant law. And that law was viewed by the king rightly as a transcript of God's character, God's just righteous character. That's how you should view the law. The law tells you what God is like. It reveals his righteous character. And so this combination of love and justice, David is saying that the law shall be the king's standard. The law's justice is the foundation of my throne, the foundation of the Davidic house or the dynasty. And so David at the outset is saying the king is to share in, the king is to reflect the character of God. All ethics are theological ethics. There's no other kind of ethics. Everyone is always saying something about God and man and time, human flourishing, human ends. Even atheists, secularists, everyone. All ethics are theological ethics. The question again is simply, whose theology? 
There's never no theology. There's only whose theology. For David, obviously as a king in Israel, God's chosen nation, God's covenant people, the answer is the theology given in the covenant law. That's the foundation of his throne. That's the foundation of his, of his ethical grid. And so the second point, building on this foundation, is the king's personal ethics. There's a lot of that in this psalm, isn't there? You can hear David talking to us about how he's going to behave and what he's going to do. Uh, notice the, uh, the vow-like quality of the psalm. He says, I will or I will not some 14 times. In this very, very short psalm, I will do this, I will not do that. I will do this. It's a very vigorous psalm. He says in verse 2, I'll be careful to lead a blameless life. This idea of being careful could be translated, I'll study. I will study, I will seek the understanding necessary to live blamelessly. And here, he's almost surely referring to what's called the law of the king in Deuteronomy 17. The law of the king. Deuteronomy 17. The kings in Israel were required to write out for themselves a copy of the law. You can imagine how arduous a task this would be in an age where you had to do this with papyrus and some sort of reed, perhaps. You'd remember it. It would take a long time. The king would write a copy of the law for his own personal daily study. He was required. And it's there in that law, the king is saying, that God's covenant love and his justice are enshrined in this text. It's through that law, David says, that blameless living is formed. Psalm 19, you might remember half of which is devoted to the law, says the law of the Lord is perfect, meaning it has integrity or wholeness. And so David, like us, is seeking to be blameless, and the blameless he seeks is exhibited in the law itself. The law is a kind of mirror that we look into to see what we should be like. He uses blameless in the psalm three times. And it does not mean sinless or perfect, otherwise the psalm would be relevant to nobody. It it means having integrity. It means whole, coherent, consistent. And for leaders and kings, it means acting in accordance with some standard. In this case, the law of the covenant. So it's a reminder that there are really no shortcuts here. For us, serious and sustained engagement, daily engagement with Scripture is the key to blameless living. It was for the kings in Israel. It is for you and me. Sacred Scripture, the Reformers always used to say, is the voice of God. Sacred Scripture is the voice of God. And without daily hearing that voice, we're left only with the voices, the echo chamber of our own thoughts. Now, David, he's aware that blamelessness is elusive. 
that it's a difficult thing to obtain. Human nature being what it is, it's tough and difficult stuff. And thus, he's aware that we have to take care when we read the text. There's a way of reading texts in general, but the Bible, that is subtly dangerous, where where in our reading we sort of terminate on the text itself, instead of reading through the text to encounter the living God. And so all we're doing is assembling ideas and concepts and principles and precepts in our brains. But there is no encounter. There's no reading through the text. And thus the text has no transformative impact on us. And this is why David interjects here, and he does it with some desperation, these really important words in the psalm, when will you come to me? You know, God does not just leave us a book. Like, I've got to go away now. Here's a manuscript. Follow it. When we encounter the book, we are praying, when will you come to me? God, through the Spirit, has to come to us. He has to shape us. He has to sanctify us by our sovereign power. This is not some sort of moral pull-yourself-up-by-the-bootstraps project. He does that through the reading of his law or his word. But when you open up the law of God or the word of God, it's a Trinitarian encounter. The Father speaks the word to you in the Spirit. When will you come to me is the prayer of people who take the scriptures and engagement with them seriously. I think this is muted in our experience. Here's a diagnostic question I've devised on this particular matter. You get up in the morning, you do your thing, you wander down to wherever it is you have your little private morning devotionals. You walk into the room. There's your Bible. It's sitting there on the desk. Are you aware that you are the fourth person in the room? The fourth person in the room. Generally, people just talk to God, some abstraction thing. There's God and me. God and me. There is, no, there is no such thing as an abstraction called God. There is only the Father who speaks the word in the Spirit. And you should have a distinct relationship with all three persons. Otherwise, you're relating to some abstraction called God who is not the Holy Trinity. When you read the Bible, you're the fourth person in the room. You have to be praying to the Father to send the Spirit from the risen Son, when will you come to me? David doesn't think you can be blameless by reading a bunch of precepts in the law and then screwing up the courage and the will to try and follow them. But this is another sermon, the Trinitarian nature of reading Scripture. The point here is that scripture reading has to be accompanied by fervent, earnest prayer for God to come. It's not only a personal encounter, it's a tri-personal encounter. 
And so, in the middle of verse 2, he says, I will conduct the affairs of my house with a blameless heart. Because he has this covenant law and the God of the covenant law to guide him. Now, house can mean dynasty, right? We speak of the house of bourbon or whatever. We can speak of a dynasty. But here it probably means the royal household itself, the government of his royal palace, his family included. That's what's in view in this early part of the psalm. For the home, the home is a kind of government, is it not? It is, in fact, the first government. It's the primitive culture, mini-culture. It's the place we receive inherited wisdom and basic identity formation. That's why statists hate it. And as such, homes need to be ordered. And thus David, he's trying to order his, his royal household, his family. David is an economist. Because economy means house law. At least that's the etymology. I know it means something else in our popular usage, but the word itself means house law. And so he's saying, I'm going to conduct my home affairs. And remember, this would be a fairly extended household with a blameless heart. Blamelessness is a matter of the heart, David says. The wellspring of our lives. The heart's the center of where your habits are being formed. Uh, The heart is the center for taming the will and for cultivating discernment, taste, instincts. And because we're fallen creatures and we have slippery hearts, because human nature is what it is, this can be difficult work. It entails, as this psalm shows, a sort of series of negations. Living positively begins with a series of uncompromising no's. There's a lot of denials in this psalm. I'm not going to do this. I won't have that. I'm not going to let this happen. I won't have that happen. You may have noticed that the Ten Commandments are mostly negative. There's a lot of no before yes in the Bible. Crucifixion before resurrection. It's not that God is against the yes. He needs to get us there properly. I think part of the reason for this is a a purely positive ethics is easily hijacked. Imagine God could have said this. He could have said in the law, honor and respect marriage. Instead, knowing human nature, he says this, do not commit adultery. Get that right. You'll have, you'll be on a good start. He He could have said, celebrate life. Instead, he said, do not kill. Because if you place these things in purely positive terms, it turns out people can do anything they want and say, well, I celebrate life. I'm celebrating marriage. He could have said, you know, rejoice in your neighbor's good economic fortune. Instead, he said, don't covet. He knows who he's dealing with. That's why the stuff comes in this form. And then it moves on. Of course, later on, he'll say it positively. So David starts here and he says, I will not, I will not, I will not look with approval on anything that's vile. He's going to watch his eyes. Because the eyes are the organs of desire. 
He's going to watch his eyes within his house. He's not going to gaze on what's worthless. And this is a bracing and much needed word in our visual obsessed age, in the internet age. Sin often starts in the eyes. And a blameless heart requires clarity in the eyes. Remember Jesus saying, if your eye is single, your whole body will be full of light. He continues, I hate what faithless people, meaning those who abandon the law, do. I'll have no part in it. There's a distinction here. This is, um, this sits very uneasily with many of us moderns, right? I hate what faithless people do. There's this distinction between the righteous and the wicked, and he's not going to blur it. It's a pledge of wholehearted covenant loyalty. Yes, this type of language and this type of thing can easily lead to a kind of pompous self-righteousness. This is dangerous stuff. But the only alternative is to give up the distinction between righteousness and wickedness and just throw us all into the same you know, pool. He says, the perverse of heart shall be far from me. It's interesting, perversity of heart here is the opposite of blamelessness. Blamelessness is whole. Perversity means twisted and inconsistent and incoherent. A perverse heart has no standard. It just does what's expedient or what's convenient. And in in Proverbs 11, it puts it starkly. It says, the Lord detests men of perverse heart, but he delights in those whose way is blameless. But David summarizes, I'll have nothing to do, the text says, with what is evil. Now remember, in this context, you know what this is saying? It is saying a righteous throne requires a righteous ruler. Right? David is talking about his, his function as king and how he'll govern himself and his household. And this means any modern talk which says that character or virtue do not matter in political office is nonsense. We are not Machiavellians who said politics has nothing to do with morals. Though our elites seem to govern that way now. Unless, of course, they need to evoke morality for some purpose. But we cannot capitulate to that. No, of course, we cannot elect perfect people. Then we would really have a naked public square. But we're called to seek rulers who want this kind of virtue. A righteous throne requires a righteous ruler. This is why I said this is an election year sermon destined to be unheeded. So, the third thing here is social ethics. And here David shifts to his administration, to his advisors. Verse 5, Whoever slanders their neighbor in secret, I will put to silence. He's the king. He has the authority to do this. The idea here, though, is I will remove them from office. So what's David saying? He's saying, I will not have slanderers and gossips in my cabinet. Whoever has haughty eyes and a proud heart, he says, I will not tolerate. This is the third time he's mentioned the heart. 
And it shows that he cares about the hearts, about the character of those whom he surrounds himself with in his administration. And what he means here is, I am not going to surround myself. Now remember, this is an ancient Near Eastern king, a monarch. He says, I will not surround myself with vain, arrogant, ambitious people who lack humility before the law of God. Proverbs 21 says, haughty eyes and a proud heart, the lamp of the wicked are sin. For these people, David has a zero tolerance policy. He wants gracious, humble, meek people in his cabinet. My eyes, verse 6 says, will be on the faithful of the land that they might dwell with me. Notice earlier in the psalm, his eyes said they would not look upon or approve what is vile. Now his eyes look out and they see, he seeks faithful, he seeks righteous advisors. Not only does character matter, the character of those you surround yourself with matters if you're a ruler. A man is known by his friends. Those whose walk is blameless like David's, again, not perfect, but whole, coherent, having integrity, they'll be his ministers. Proverbs 22.11 says this, He who loves a pure heart and whose speech is gracious will have the king for his friend. Purity of heart, graciousness in speech. That's what a righteous king looks for. And the second half of verse 6 says, No one, no one who practices deceit will dwell in my house. Again, here by house he means his administration. It's a stark affirmation. No spin, no lying. No half-truths, no cover-up, no straw men, no distorting the the opposition's positions, no self-serving rationalizations, no political hacks just because they're effective. No one who practices deceit will dwell in my house, my kingly administration. I'll be the first person as king who removes liars. This is critical for a just administration. Proverbs 29.12 says this. If a ruler listens to lies, all his officials become wicked. Liars attract other liars. And liars should not hold public office. This is why, again... Political sermon destined to be ignored by everyone. This is the state of affairs. No one who speaks falsely, David says, will stand in my presence. A few of us in here used to work for IBM, myself included, and uh, there were some pretty tough chief executive type officers who ran the Poughkeepsie plant in the 80s and 90s. And if you went in to present in their office, you had to make a presentation. Usually there'd be a long, you know, conference table. People would sweat for three or four days preparing all the slides. 
And you'd go in there with fear and trembling. And there was one guy in the 80s, I'm pretty sure Dan knows who he was, who if you started to present to him and he thought you were lying, you were covering up, you were not giving it to him straight, he would nod to his administrative assistant who would tell you to stop. You could be in the middle of your first slide. He would publicly humiliate you and ask you to leave the office. He would just lift his, he would just nod at the administrative assistant. The administrative assistant would say, Mr. X has heard enough. Take your slides and leave. That's the kind of king David is. He's not going to have any liars. He's not going to come, have people coming in telling him rosy stories. No one who speaks falsely in my presence will stand. He's going to implement the wisdom of Proverbs. By the way, let me just make a general point here. You see all this stuff in the law and the law and David's law, and you might think, all right, it's the law, so it's just for Israel. But as I said, the principles apply to any just ruler, and the way you see that is the same principles are in the book of Proverbs, right? which is a general, more broader diffusion of God's truth. Proverbs is, if you will, Israel's law interacting with broader cultural currents. And so Proverbs 25 says, Remove the wicked from the king's presence, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Right? Remove the cabinet members who are corrupt. What do we do? We defend them, we circle the wagons, we make excuses, we blame the people accusing them. The king should be the leader in the purification of his cabinet. We're so polarized and politicized, we can't even see this anymore. So finally, in verse 8, he says, Every morning I'll put to silence all the wicked of the land. Here he's moving outward now. He, He started with himself. Then he moved to his house. Then he moved to his administration. Now he moves out to the city or to the land. And he's thinking of his judicial role as king. He's like the chief executive, and it's probably the case that the very hard cases that weren't handled by the judges would be referred to the king. And so every morning he takes the bench. That's what's being alluded to here with the morning. He takes the bench to execute justice and to silence, to cut off the wicked from the land, from Jerusalem, from the city of the Lord. When a king sits on his throne to judge, Proverbs 20 says, he winnows out all evil with his eyes. Imagine saying that of an American politician. He or she winnows out all evil with their eyes. It's very difficult to do, of course, when you're in a headlong cultural flight from the very idea of reason itself or moral order. So David is elected. He's chosen by the Lord. And the same God that chose David chose this land, chose this wonderful city of Jerusalem. And thus the purity, this is key to get in Psalm 101, the purity with which he governs himself and his administration must extend to his realm. He's the king's minister. This is true of all leaders, by the way. Romans 13 calls leaders, rulers in the state, God's deacons. 
Thus David knows he has to maintain virtue and punish evil. That's the basic role of the state. At some level, you could reduce the role of the state to this. Maintain some measure of virtue and order. Punish evil. Not every evil, that's true, but at least the evils that are going to disrupt the common good. So David is saying here, look, I am not, in this last verse, he's saying, I'm not going to let the city or the land become an ethical slum. He knows that God's seeking a holy people under a holy sun in a holy realm, under the covenant law. There's a funny little anecdote related to our psalm. There was a 17th century German duke. He was named, appropriately, Ernest the Pious. Hopefully not self-named, but Ernest the Pious. And he sent a copy of our text, a copy of Psalm 101, to an unfaithful official of his. This is an illustration of what David said he's going to do. Can you imagine that today? Somebody had been treacherous. It was an official in his administration. Right? Instead of meeting with the spin doctors and trying to manage the news cycle, he sends the person a copy of Psalm 101 to read. And it became a proverb in the country that when any public servant was involved in wrongdoing, the people would say, he will soon receive the prince's psalm to read. He will soon get himself a copy of Psalm 101. By the way, those people were good exegetes or interpreters of this text. They knew exactly what this text was about. It's about a righteous king who will have a righteous administration and who will himself be the enforcer of righteousness. Again, on himself first, with his administration second, and with the people third. This is a psalm for princes, presidential candidates. And now we're going to crash back down to reality a little bit because David himself fails miserably to keep all the oaths and vows in this text. He fails to distance himself from the vile things. He sets vile things before his eyes, murder and adultery. He has perverse and slanderous son who nearly loses his kingdom to. It goes really bad for David. Just because the psalm is an ideal does not mean people are going to live up to it. Solomon, David's son, ends after a promising start in corruption. His kingdom is torn in two during his son's reign. The whole history of the kings of Israel and Judah, with very few exceptions, is tragic. It ranges from mediocrity to idolatry and ending in exile. So sure, in one sense, it's a psalm which no one is going to heed. It's also a psalm which nobody really heeded in Israel, at least for very long. And that brings us to a certain dilemma in the reading of Psalm 101, does it not? And I hope by now we can make the move that is necessary. Because the Psalms are not just about David. They are about the son of David. 
The Psalms are not just precepts and advice. They point us to Christ. They point us to the fullness of time when an anointed greater son of David comes, the one who alone prays and upholds this psalm with integrity. There's only one person who's lived out Psalm 101. Not me, not you, not any politician. Again, that doesn't mean it can't be there as a guide or a standard. It was a good thing that Ernest the Pious would send copies of it. However, even Ernest the Pious, his name notwithstanding, does not live up to Psalm 101. Jesus upholds it with integrity. He alone fulfills the promise of the Davidic covenant. This is why it's so important that Jesus be the son of David. He upholds the justice of God's law. He obeyed our confession, say, with perfect, personal, exact, and entire obedience. That is why his obedience in your stead is your salvation. And now, you know what the risen Jesus is doing? He prays this prayer for his house, for his city, the church. He seeks a purified people to commune with him. But not on their own strength or righteousness, on the basis of his sacrifice. This, this kind of character, we're all going to fall short of it, especially our politicians, it seems. But it is the kind of character that Jesus, who didn't fall short, is praying for for you. Is interceding for in you and in me. And this one will, as David did at the end of this text, silence or cut off all evil and establish justice, not only in the church, but in the land, the whole earth. But the end or the goal of this psalm is Jesus Christ himself, a holy son, the righteous king, dwelling with a holy people in a holy land, a land where covenant love and justice dwell. Amen.